Well done. All right, so here's the housekeeping. The housekeeping is, you know that twice a year we do a baptism service, and one of those is coming up September 12th. So we're super excited about that. In baptism, we get to celebrate our, the new life that we have in Christ. Some of you have just come to Christ this year, these last couple months. Some of you have been walking with him for a while. So here's my invitation. If you, have, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized, we would love to celebrate baptism and to see you walk in obedience to the command of the Lord to be baptized in his name uh, on September 12th. So if you want to take steps in that direction, here's what you can do. Go to the church website or call the church. At the church website, you will find a link where you can click and get information about a class that is happening August 29th. August 29th, that's a Sunday, right after the second service at 1230. Uh, myself, a couple of the elders will be in there. We're gonna talk to you about what baptism is, why we celebrate it, why Jesus commanded it. We'll do a little bit of that teaching-wise. And then we'll spend some time talking about your testimony, how you came to know the Lord. And uh, you are not committing to be baptized by coming to the class, but you get to come and learn more about it. So we just wanna invite you, August 29th, 1230, come to the class, September 12th, baptism service. We'll be outside. It's gonna be awesome. Can't wait. All right, you as excited as I am for that? I hope. That's a great couple of Sundays every year in the life of our church body. All right, so now that's the housekeeping. The correction I want to offer from last week, and we should never be afraid to, if we misstate someone something or kind of make a misstep, to always go back and just correct. Yes? That should be just a pattern in our lives. So last week we were looking at the command of Jesus to not be anxious, and he talked with us about these different reasons why. We saw the same pattern we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount where he gives us a command. And he gives us the reasons to obey that command. But I said, I think I gave the impression last week, particularly for those of you who might be struggling with maybe not just your sort of garden variety anxiousness, you know, in the sense of like circumstantial day-to-day anxiousness. But for those of you who may be wrestling with a more clinical diagnosis of anxiety, uh, maybe mental health challenges, I felt, and our preaching team gave me this feedback, and I'm so thankful for it because I think they pointed out something I did not see was that I may have left you with the impression that all you need to do is just have more faith. If you just had more faith, then you wouldn't be wrestling with those issues. And that's just not true. I want you to know that as believers living in a fallen world, these are real struggles that we have, right? We're not out from underneath the challenges uh, and the, the wrestlings that come with all manner uh, of, of challenges in the realm of mental health and anxiety. And in particular, I think when I said this, I said, hey, the gospel's all you need. What I intended to imply was not that therapeutic means or counseling are unhelpful or wrong to pursue, but rather that to pursue those apart from a way that roots you in the gospel, to pursue therapeutic means that don't root you in the truth of the gospel and then help bring the implications of that out in your life is not going to solve the problem not going to alleviate the challenge. Now, I do want to say that the word of God to us and those six things that we saw, Jesus saying this, whether you are wrestling with an anxiety that is in that realm of, of a clinical diagnosis and it's a mental health, you may be facing some mental health challenges, or whether it's the more, for lack of a better term, garden variety, I do want you to know God's word stands for you. That call for all of us to trust the Lord, to fight for faith, to believe and to, and to look for the examples and the demonstrations of his love in our life, which he was so evidently telling us last week. So God's word applies to all of us, whatever our circumstances, yes? But I would just be crushed as your pastor if I left you with the sense that all you needed to do was just believe harder or that you shouldn't be having some of the struggles that you're having if you just had enough faith. That would be incorrect and bad doctrine 
and bad teaching on my part. So I wanted to come back and correct that. And I am, let me just ask your forgiveness if that in any way left you just with a heavy burden for the week um, that was not a burden God intended you to carry. Sometimes he burdens us when we come here together, yes? And it's a burden he intends for us to carry because it's a conviction of sin. It's a walking in something new. But I think I left a wrong impression last week. So I just wanted to come back and correct that. So I hope you'll give me grace in that. And let me pray for us now. And I'm going to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. All right. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for grace and the fellowship of the saints. And we pray now that you would teach us from your word, instruct us rightly, help us to grow in humility. And I pray specifically, Lord Jesus, that we would first ask how the command that you give us today applies to us, not how it applies to others. Help us to do that wisely. That would be wise of us. Help us to do it. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, Jesus says, do not be anxious. His command this week is no easier. He tells us this week not to judge each other. That's, that's the text we come to when he says, judge not that you be not judged. And I'll read the whole passage for us here in a moment. But as we come to this, I think it's a timely passage. We have been through a season, not just our church, but churches around our country and in our homes, a season of division, yes? I mean, I imagine that many of you have found that there have been harmed, harmed relationships or difficult relationships in your homes with your family members, within the church body, within the fellowship of the saints, with friends who are believers and other churches. And it's, a hard, it's been a hard thing to walk through this year. And I think the passage that, you know, I'm glad we don't cherry pick passages around here. We walk through the scriptures and so we come to this. But I think it's timely for us because in the midst of this wrestling that's gone on, particularly in areas of how we respond to COVID, in politics and in areas of race and issues around that in our society, there's a lot of division in the church and we'll have time to take up other conversations about some of those things. In particular, our elders are just doing, I think, a really solid job of wrestling through all the dialogue around issues of race and terminology and, uh, and wanting to instruct our church wisely and well in what is a right and good theology of ethnicity and of race. And in time, I'll get, to, I'll get to bring that to you all and spend some time with you helping us think through that and then how we approach terminology as it relates to those things. And we'll spend some time doing that. But this has been one of those seasons where the church has been wrestling with some folks saying, this is the truth and we have to stand on it. And others saying, wait, I'm not sure that's a dividing issue. And so we come to this passage today where Jesus gives us this command. Now, can I tell you what we're all going to be prone to do today and invite you not to do it? We're all going to be prone to say, yes, I have felt judged by someone else this year and to think about how they judged me. Can I encourage you, please implore you, please don't start there. The first place to start is to ask, where have I been guilty of disobeying this command? And it is a command. Judge not. We want to see and understand what that means. What does Jesus mean when he says judge not? He is just like the pattern we've seen. He is going to, remember, he started in the Sermon on the Mount by talking about who we are in him. If we're followers of his, talking to believers, he says, this is who you are. He talks about our character, the very thing he's planted inside of us, how he's made us new. And he talks about all those things. And then he trans, you know, moved on into a section talking about what do we do then in light of that? And we're in that section. What, what do we do as we turn the corner into the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount? And he gives us these commands 
and then reasons why we should obey those commands. We're gonna find that to be true again today. So as you hear this command, again, I wanna invite you first to ask, how does this apply to where I have judged others and to wrestle with that? Here's Jesus' aim, I believe, for us today. He wants to free us from the danger of a pharisaical heart. He wants to free us from the danger of a pharisaical heart. And friends, can I tell you, a heart full of criticism and judgment that points out the flaws of others and eagerly looks for them, it is a danger. It is a danger, and he wants to set you free from that today. So here's what we have, a very straightforward command. Do not judge each other. Stop judging each other. And let's read the text, and then what I wanna give you is, I wanna give you five reasons why Jesus tells us to not judge one another. The first one, I'm gonna infer from the command and then the next four, we're just gonna walk verse by verse through them and see how Jesus gives them to us as reasons to not judge each other. So Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse one, says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that last verse is a little interesting, isn't it? Right there at the end, like, wait, how does this fit with it? And we'll come to that. We'll, we'll explain that. But here's our first reason why, as we think about Jesus giving us this command, do not judge one another. The first reason why we shouldn't do that, or the first reason why we should obey that command, is that we don't have to be judgmental in order to be discerning. All right, now I said I'm inferring this from the command, because what Jesus is clearly not saying here is just be a person who acts like there's no such things, no such thing as the truth. Don't be a person who is afraid to stand up for your convictions. Just be a wishy-washy person. Just be a person who goes along to get along. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He is, however, saying that in order to be discerning and a person who stands for the truth, you don't have to disobey this command in order to do that. You don't have to be judgmental. So he must mean something else, something other than simply just... Let everyone believe that everything's okay. Never correct anybody. Are you with me? Jesus is not teaching that, yes? It's very important that we get that before we move on to uh, the other things because we live today in a time where this may be the most popular verse for non-Christians to quote to Christians, right? You offer a word of, hey, I don't think that's probably a good thing to do. I don't think that's right. And their response is what? Don't judge me. Right? Well, there's a couple reasons why it's inappropriate. Number one, first of all, Jesus is talking to believers about our relationships with one another here. First and foremost, when he's saying, do not judge me. He's not saying, don't tell the world that this thing is wrong or that thing is wrong or counter to the purposes of God. But it's interesting that someone who doesn't believe might know this scripture yet and hold us accountable to it in our relationship with them, interestingly enough. But he is not saying, don't be corrective, don't be discerning. He is saying something else. Now let me tell you why I know he's not saying that. Number one is he 
clearly points out that the speck is something to be removed from the eye of the person with the speck in these verses, right? Did you catch that? He says, take the log out first, but then you'll be able to see clearly in order to remove the speck. So the speck that is in the person's eye, Jesus tells us, is something to be removed. Not only that, in verse 15 of chapter 7, so just a few verses later, Jesus is going to tell us to beware of false prophets. He's going to be very clear with us to correct false teaching and false prophecy. So we couldn't do that if, we, if judge not meant never correct anybody or never stand up for the truth. We can keep going, but just a few more will help us. John chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus actually there says, judge with right judgment. He's talking about not looking at sort of the outward appearance. But he's saying, don't just judge someone by kind of what's on the surface, but judge with right judgment. In other words, judge according to character. Judge according to action and what's revealed and displayed. That's John 7, verse 24. And then much of the New Testament. If Jesus were simply saying here, don't ever stand up for the truth, much of the New Testament would be invalid because most of the epistles are written to churches by Paul and Peter and others, John, who are often correcting something that they believe or some way they are applying the gospel into their fellowship that isn't accurate or that isn't helpful. And so he's correcting that. So hopefully that gives you a sense that what Jesus is not saying here is never stand up for the truth and don't speak about a corrective word to someone who may need it. Now, what then does he mean when he says, judge not? Because Jesus does give us this command, so it's imperative that we understand what he means. So I think John Stott is helpful here, and I'll quote him. When John, well, just I'll give you a kind of a summary, and then I'll quote him. John Stott says that when Jesus says, judge not, he is saying, don't put ourselves in the position of a condemning judge, of someone who puts ourselves in the place that only God can take in someone's life. And then he uses this interesting word, which we don't use that much, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uses it too. And it's an interesting word, censoriousness. Censoriousness. Now, don't worry, I'm going to explain that. All right, so here's what Stott says censoriousness is. He says, the censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. I think that's a pretty good definition, don't you? So he's telling us when Jesus says, judge not, that's the kind of thing he's saying to guard against in our own hearts. And then he sums it up this way. To sum up, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. I like that. It's not a requirement to be blind, but a plea to be generous. So here's a question for us. In this last year, have you been generous in the conclusions you've drawn about other believers? Have you been generous in your assumptions about their motives? Have you been generous in the words that you've spoken about them in this year? As you reflect on the answer to those questions, recognize that they reflect on whether or not you and I have obeyed this command to judge not. Now, in a minute, I'm gonna give you some more marks of this kind of, um, this kind of spirit that disobeys the command to judge not. But here's another way that this is my own construction, another way to kind of help unpack this. When Jesus says judge not, he's saying don't be hypercritical or hypocritical. 
Don't be hypercritical or hypocritical. I shared that with my wife and she said, so don't be a hyper hippo. So if that helps you, they'll stick in your brain. Don't be hypercritical and don't be hypocritical. There's two ways to be hypercritical. Being hypercritical looks like this. It looks like the speck in the log. It looks like saying that speck is a massive deal when it's a speck. Turning minor things into major things. They may still be something that need to be corrected. But have you ever found someone or have you ever found yourself acting like every small little thing that needs to be corrected is a massive deal and worth dividing over and separating because of? That would be a demonstration of being hypercritical. I think that's why Jesus used the idea of a speck being in someone's eye. The other way to be hypercritical is to turn areas of liberty into litmus tests for biblical fidelity. Is to turn areas of liberty into litmus tests for biblical fidelity. So that we take things where Christians can rightly disagree and diverge and should be able to stay in fellowship with one another and we turn them into litmus tests for whether or not you are biblically faithful. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. When he says this, let me read Romans 14 verses one to four for you. The Romans are having this discussion about issues related to food and their, whether you can eat or not eat. And this is what Paul says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. That last verse is really key there, by the way. And he will be upheld. In other words, Paul is not saying some of you eat, some of you don't eat. One is weaker in faith. One is stronger, right? And so we might take from that that he, he would lean in a direction of saying this would be the better approach. But do you see what he's saying? Who are you to judge another? Don't pass judgment on matters of opinion. And when he says at the end, he is able, he will be upheld. In other words, he's saying it's okay that one of you is doing one thing and the other is doing another thing. There are areas of liberty within the body. There are areas where we can diverge and we can have good, strong, robust conversations about why we hold the perspective that we hold. But when we turn areas of liberty into areas of a litmus test for whether or not you're biblically unfaithful or biblically faithful, we are guilty of a spirit of being hypercritical and therefore, I believe, guilty of disobeying the command to judge not. Let me give a concrete example of that. This last year, during the election cycle, it was, it was one of the challenges of the 2020 election cycle was that I, I urged you pretty strongly that this was an area of liberty. Now, some of the issues at stake in our life together as a country are not areas of liberty. They are clear and biblical. The protection of human life, right? Issues of sexuality and gender. These are clear issues. And yet I urged you to see that believers could prayerfully wade through those issues, think about the best way to bring God's kingdom to bear in our country, and they could come to different conclusions about how they place their vote. I believe and still believe that was an area of liberty. Now, some of you disagreed with that strongly. You felt that, it was, that that was a failure of leadership, that we needed to 
advocate very strongly, and by the way, in different directions from different ones of you that I heard from, that there was a specific way that believers should vote. Now here, I tell you that because I'm arguing that's an area of liberty. You're arguing that's an area of a litmus test of biblical fidelity. And we didn't see eye to eye on that. But let me tell you the reason I'm pointing that out is because I recognize how hard it is to discern which are which. Because let me now go to the other side of that. I have also urged and argued strongly from this pulpit that there is only one version of sexuality that God approves of and commends and calls holy. There's only one demonstration of that. And it's sex between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And I've argued that strongly, and others then would say, I think that's an area of liberty, not an area of a litmus test of biblical fidelity. And I have said strongly, it is an area of biblical fidelity, even while you argue that it is an area of liberty. My point in all that, I don't want to go into why I think I'm right that one is an area of liberty and one is an area of a litmus test for biblical fidelity. I simply want to point out it can be hard to know when we are dealing with one, it's imperative then that we know the scriptures. And friends, if I could just urge you, if you are imploring that believers must all align on an issue and you can't point clearly to the scriptures and where it dictates that to us, you may be perhaps in danger of declaring a litmus test area into a liberty area. You with me? So that's the first thing is being hypercritical. Now, Lloyd-Jones, who I've told you, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I told you I borrow, I'm borrowing heavily from him often in these sermons because he has such a good writing on the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a number of demonstrations or just, if you will, tests of whether this kind of hypercritical spirit might be in us. I just want to share them with you because I think they're really helpful. As I went through these this week, it was challenging to me. I found that in my heart, these things are present a hypercritical spirit at times and in ways, and I want to be free from that, and I want you to be free from it as well. So here's what Lloyd-Jones says, some indicators of a hypercritical spirit. If I feel even a twinge of joy over another believer being torn down, when confrontation is about defending the truth, there is sorrow in the heart of the one who does the confronting. If I handle my concerns in an ungodly way, I may be guilty of being hypercritical. Because you see, friends, godly concerns are handled in godly ways. Yes? Godly concerns about the truth and about standing up for the truth and speaking this is correct and this is incorrect. Godly concerns are handled in godly ways. Believing you represent the truth does not justify ungodly action in its defense. If I'm gossiping, lying, or speaking half-truths, or speaking my opinion without full knowledge of the facts, my concern is probably not to defend the truth. It's probably to defend an idol in my heart. If I'm always looking for the faults of others, if I'm expecting and hoping to find those faults, the desire to find faults is why we turn minors into majors. It's why we turn specks in our minds into logs. If I insert myself into matters that don't concern me, if I assume motives to others or assign motives to others, which I cannot know, 
if I ignore context surrounding the situation about which I am being critical. If I want to condemn and categorize, if that's my bent, I want to condemn and categorize so that I can no longer listen to or have to be in fellowship with that person. They're a racist. They've gone liberal. My aim is to just categorize. I may be guilty of a hypercritical spirit. Now, I found those helpful as I went through those in Martin Lloyd-Jones's exercise this week. So I pass them on to you. Now, the other way to be guilty of disobeying this command, to judge not, is not just to be hypercritical, but to be hypocritical. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says in this text, he says, you've got a log in your own eye. How is it that you think you can remove the speck from your brother's eye? He's saying you are guilty of something that you are accusing someone else of. That's what he means when he's saying you're being, he literally uses the word, you hypocrite. And when we're guilty of that kind of hypocrisy, then we are guilty of disobeying the command to not judge our brother or our sister. Now, friends, here's, uh, let me just say this. I think this is much broader, right? I think this is much broader than simply saying, well, I'm only unable to confront or correct a brother if I'm dealing with the same exact sin. So, you know, if I'm gossiping, then I can't confront you about gossiping. I think this is broader. I think Jesus is teaching us that if there's any willful, unrepentant sin in our lives that we continue to cling to, it's inappropriate for, inappropriate for us to play corrector of someone else in their life. So for instance, if I'm cheating on my spouse, I don't need to go to you and say, you're gossiping, cut it out. I'm a hypocrite for doing that. In other words, maybe the easy way to think about it is the speck and the log, they don't have to be the same type of wood. They might be two different kinds of wood. And yet I would still be a hypocrite for pointing out your gossiping while I am engaged in infidelity. Does that make sense? So those are the two grounds that were given here, hypercritical and hypocritical. Now, if you're watching the clock and you're worried, I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on the next four as I did on the first one. All right. So that's number one, because we need to understand what does he mean when he says, don't judge each other. Stop doing that. And so hopefully we, we're clear. It doesn't mean don't stand up for the truth. It doesn't mean don't correct others. It does, however, invite us to probably be slow to do that and thoughtful about it and to examine ourselves before we ever seek to do that in someone else's life, lest we be guilty of being hypercritical or hypocritical. Now let's look at reason number two that he gives us to not judge one another. The second reason is we will bring a stricter judgment on ourselves. We will bring a stricter judgment on ourselves. Look at the end of verse one and then verse two. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, the most obvious application of this, immediately when you hear it, probably your mind goes where my mind normally goes, which is, hey, if I'm this type of critical person, then others are gonna be critical of me. 
that's just going to be sort of a, I'm going to get what I give, right? I'm going to reap what I sow. And that's true. That's a true principle. It's not false, but it's not predominantly the judgment that Jesus has in mind here. He uses a form of the verb here, which points to the eternal judgment that we will face before the Lord, not just the kind of judgment that you and I might pass on one another. So when he says, judge not that you be not judged, he's not just talking about if I judge you, you'll judge me in return. And you'll do it with the same level of strictness that I did it to you with. Uh, He is saying there will be a stricter judgment upon you. Now, that needs clarification. There are three ways the scriptures talk to us about God's judgment. Three types of judgment that God exercises. The first is is judgment for eternal life, for salvation or damnation. And it's very imperative that you hear me say that that judgment always and only rests upon grace through faith that we receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus and his finished work alone. It has nothing to do with our works. Somebody say amen to that. All right, good, we're awake. I like it, all right. That's the first judgment that the scriptures are predominantly speak about. Another kind of judgment the scriptures speak about God exercising upon his people is judgment, a disciplinary judgment in the here and now. So that's what Hebrews 12 is talking about when it says there, he, like a good father, he disciplines the children that he loves. He brings a discerning hand of discipline on his kids strong enough that it points it's even called a hand of judgment. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about when believers in Corinth were doing something inappropriate with the Lord's Supper and engaging with it in such a way that Paul says, because of your willful sin and your unrepentant heart, God himself has caused some of you to be sick and even some of you to die as a result of that. There's a disciplinary hand of the Lord upon you. Now, that's a sobering reality, isn't it? But it's certainly a reality the scriptures talk about. That's the second kind of judgment. Jesus has in mind the third kind that I'm gonna tell you, and it's a judgment for eternal reward. And that is based upon our works. Our salvation, our status for the Lord is secure and firm by grace through faith alone. But there will be a judgment for all believers when we stand before God for what we have done with the things he's given us in this life. With our money, with our time, with our talents, with all that he's placed in our hands. What have we done with them? And we will receive a reward based upon the answer to that question. And so when Jesus says here, You will face a stricter judgment if you are this strict in judgment, this type of person with others. What he's saying is when you stand before me, I will apply to you the strict standard that you applied to others and you will lose reward as a result because the standard was so high, you have not gotten over the bar. So there will be a loss of reward before the Lord when we are judged by him if we are this type of person who is hypercritical and hypocritical in this life. So what 1 Corinthians chapter three is talking about when Paul writes there and he says, if you build upon the foundation of Jesus and the gospel with precious stones and with jewels, and in other words, if you, if you build well on it, then there will be reward. But if you build with wood and hay and stubble, in other words, if you kind of waste your life, if you do that, He says, you will suffer loss. Those are the exact words. You will suffer loss, but you yourself will be saved as though through fire. And again, Paul's point there and Jesus' point here is to sober us into thinking about how do we obey this command and we must obey it or there will be a real loss for us. And I would spare you that loss. You will face a stricter judgment. So will I. 
if we are this kind of person. Reason number three, to, to judge not. We will become blinder to our own sin. We will become blinder to our own sin. Look at verse three. After saying in verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus isn't just pointing out here that this happened. Like, hey, every once in a while, this sort of thing happens. Someone is noticing a speck, but they fail to see the log. He's actually helping us see a principle A person who is constantly hunting for specks often misses the log in their own eye. In other words, if you are a person who fails to obey the command to judge not, if you are hypocritical and hypocritical, you will become increasingly blind to your own sin because you'll always be concerned about looking for it in others. And when you spend your time and your energy looking for it in others, being a fault finder, as John Stott said, when you do that, you miss the sin in your own life. You become blind to that. And in becoming blind to it, you suffer the consequences of that sin, the ramifications of it, the spiritual weakness, the lack of intimacy with Christ. Again and again, we experience these these things by being hypercritical and hypocritical. And listen, you get that when Jesus is using this illustration, he's being intentionally ironic. You get that, right? He's pointing, he's talking about someone having a log in their eye. It's a ridiculous image. And that that person with this massive log in their eye would look at you and say, you've got a tiny little piece of dust in your eye. Did you know that? It would be like me standing up here and closing an eye being, you know, on the back road there, you've got a hair out of place. He's intending for you to see how ironical it is. He's intending for you to be arrested by the image and go, that's silly. It's ridiculous that anyone would ever think they could see a speck in someone's eye when they have a log in their own. And that ironical image is meant to cause us to pause and to say, that's really egregious. Now, here's what I would encourage you. As you leave today, when you leave today, Don't walk out and go, well, I'm good. I'm on the right side of this line of discerning truth versus judging. But to start with the question, where have I judged others? Where have I been guilty of this hypercritical, hypocritical spirit? Because if you are, you're becoming increasingly blind to your own sin. And Jesus is trying to rescue you and me from that reality. Reason number four, to judge not you will hurt other people. We will hurt other people. Listen to what he says after verse three, then he goes on in verse four and he says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So again, it's possible to do that correcting work, to take the speck out. Just the log must come out first. But verse four and five make very clear to us that if I try to take the speck out of your eye, if I try to bring a word of correction to you, not only is it silly of me and hypocritical of me, I'm going to hurt you. If I have a log in my eye, I am not going to be able to correct you in any kind of a way that's actually helpful to you. There's gonna be no tenderness. There's gonna be, I mean, look, he's using the eye for a reason. It's a really delicate instrument, isn't it? 
The second a finger come towards, comes towards your eye or any object, what do you immediately do? You close it, right? Because it's so sensitive. You people, I don't have context. If you have context, I don't know how you do it. How do you stick anything in your eye? I've got kids trying to get eye drops in their eye when they have like an infection. It's like I've been attacked by cats by the time I'm done. Because getting anything in your, in your eye is a, such a delicate procedure. That's his point. Correcting someone to get a speck out of their eye is really delicate. It requires a deft touch. It requires tenderness and grace and humility and the kind of approach to someone that says, hey, I'm full of love for you. And the person with a log in their eye just cannot exercise that kind of tenderness. That's his point. It is impossible for you to do what you think you're doing. You are going to hurt someone. That's reason number four why he instructs us to judge not. And then the last one, reason number five, we come back to that interesting verse at the end. After having said all this about not judging each other, and he's talking about relationships between believers, then he goes to verse six and he says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And you have to think, well, what is the relationship here between those things? Well, a couple of points we need to understand about verse six. Number one, when he takes up that terminology, dogs and pigs, he's clearly no longer talking about other believers now. He's talking about those outside the faith. And I get, by the way, for those of you who are here with us and checking out who Jesus is, that's an offensive term. But in a Jewish culture, what Jesus is doing is saying, look, outside of me, no one can be clean. Pigs are unclean animals. And dogs are not these nice domesticated animals that we have in our homes now. They roamed the streets and they were dangerous. And he's saying that those outside the faith, he's saying to his disciples, they can be dangerous to you because they disagree with your way in the world and what you teach and what you're going to represent. He says, don't cast your pearls before them. And the pearl there, the best image is to go to Jesus' own teaching when he calls the gospel itself, the pearl of great price. The thing's worth selling everything to get. And so there what he's saying is, there are times where to, to share the gospel, to bring the gospel to bear on someone who is so antagonistic towards the faith and towards believers would be an unwise thing in that moment. You're gonna need great discernment as you go out to share the gospel. Now, friends, hear me. I want you to share the gospel. I want it to be on your mouth, on your lips, everywhere you go. But there are, Jesus is saying here, moments where the better part of wisdom, the better part of discernment is to say, this person is so antagonistic, so angry that this is not the moment to bring the gospel to bear in this situation at this moment. That's not to say that person is written off forever. It's not to say that you wouldn't circle back around and bring the gospel into that situation. But why is Jesus tacking this on here at the end? And the reason is, I believe what he's saying is you're going to need not just discernment to correct truth, take specks out of each other's eyes. You're gonna need discernment in all walks of life, in all manners, in your relationships with unbelievers as well as with believers. And you're going to lack that discernment if you are a person who disobeys my command to judge not. That discernment doesn't just, you don't just lose discernment. I mean, the irony of the person with the log in their eye trying to take the speck out of someone's eye, right, is that in becoming judgmental, they actually become less able to do the thing that they wanted to become less discerning 
less discerning about their own sin and less discerning about what's actually going on in someone else's life. And not only does that lack of discernment take place within us and among us, it takes place in all walks of life. Which is just another way of saying, when we sin, it doesn't just stay limited to one area of our lives. It spreads out into everything. And Jesus is pointing out here that the kind of discernment you're gonna need to carry out my mission, you're not gonna have it because you have failed to obey my command to judge not. Now friends, I know here's the, here's the natural inclination is to say, what about representing the truth and being bold with the truth? And we've already seen Jesus is not eliminating that, but the purpose of today is not to give a lesson on how do we be bold in our representation of the truth. The purpose of today's text is to cause us to be sober about whether or not we have been people who have excused judging other believers in the name of the truth, when in fact what we've been doing is being hypercritical and hypocritical, and that would be the thing we need to consider today. So my encouragement to you, my encouragement to you as you prepare to leave here in a few moments, is that I believe this is such a timely text in the life of our body and bodies around our country. Jesus is seeking to save us from a pharisaical spirit, and the question that comes to us is, will we listen? And will we look at ourselves first? Will we ask, where have I judged others? There may be some conversations you need to go have, some people you need to circle back to, some forgiveness that needs to be sought out. Maybe up until this very moment, you thought, I was just giving a correction because this person was off base. They had a speck in their eye, and yet you never paused to ask whether or not you had a log in your own. You never pause to ask if you were being hypercritical or hypocritical in any way. And Jesus' word invites you to make that consideration today. And I trust his spirit will guide you in it. It will guide you that then back into fellowship with other believers whom you have broken from. Let me pray for us. And then we'll sing to the Lord together. Lord, we thank you for your word every week. We are glad for it, and it never ceases to challenge us. We thank you that you are unafraid to bring your word to bear in our lives because you desire to sanctify us and make us more like yourself. We thank you that that sanctifying work has been purchased for us at the cross and now is making its way through our lives, and we pray that it would do so in increasing measure. Our job is to yield to you. We ask that you'd show us how to. Lord, just in great tenderness, because you know how to do, with great surgical precision, the work of sanctifying us, we pray that you would show us where we've been in disobedience to your command, and perhaps encourage us if we've been in obedience to it. Show us that as well. Speak that encouragement to us. Having received your word, we commit ourselves to obey. And now we reply with worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.